This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Since its founding in 1980, Westminster Seminary, California has had four presidents, Robert Strimple, Bob Dendolk, and Bob Godfrey. This month, we welcome our fourth president, the Reverend Mr. Joel Kim, Associate Professor of New Testament. He's taught at Westminster Seminary, California since 2005. He's an ordained teaching elder in the PCA, which he served since 2001, having served pastorates in Los Angeles, Ann Arbor, and Orange County, California. Joel and Sharon have two covenant children, and he's co-editor of Always Reformed, essays in honor of W. Robert Godfrey. This, with other faculty titles, is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me back. I guess I should say Mr. President. A little awkward to hear it at this point, <laughs> but yes, you can. Okay. Well, not to begin your presidency with uh, problems, but welcome to the job, because right away, I want to bring to your attention a major problem that the seminary has to confront, and that is this. Your name is not Bob. We've had Bob Strimple, Bob Dendalk, and Bob Godfrey. So what are you going to do about that, Mr. President? Well, I think Bob Godfrey was cheating because Bob is his middle name. So let's start with that, remembering that there is a change involved. Just as importantly, I think Bob decided that he wanted to give me a new name. So I think he said publicly, my name should be J. Robert Kim. By the way, Robert is not my middle name. And depending on our constituency, they felt like perhaps Robert Kimsma (laughs) or Vander Kim might also work for those who might be interested in names like that. What is your real middle name? Joel Unil Kim, which means grace overflows. I realize it sounds kind of awkward for a lot of folks, but that's a Korean name. There's an interesting story behind it. Would you like to hear it? Please. When my older sister was born, and we were all born in Korea, all five of us, when she was born in Korea, my grandfather, who happened to be a pastor, had a guest speaker who was speaking on John 1.14. And it talks about grace and truth, being full of grace and truth. When my grandfather approached the speaker to name his first grandchild, because in Korea, it's often custom that the parents or the grandparents name the child, the speaker decided to name her Grace and Truth, which in Korean is Eunjin. When I was born, my grandfather decided to use the same passage. Full of Grace and Truth translates into Eunil, which is who I am. I'm not the most graceful when you see me, but at least my name is Grace and Truth, full of it. That was the prayer, I think, for our our parents and grandparents as well. And all my siblings share the similar grace beginning to their names. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. I knew some of that story, but I didn't know the part about your grandfather. Mm -hmm. So that's very nice. You are not only the first non-Bob to be president, but as you were indicating, you're Korean-American. And the listener could go back and listen to the episode we did many years ago in 2009, where you know we were sort of going through the faculty, introducing uh, the faculty to the listener. But just in case the listener hasn't heard that Office Hours episode, tell us a little bit about your story. So you said you were born in Korea, and when did you emigrate to the USA? I came to the States when I was nine. My father was studying in the States for his THM at that point, and he was already ministering in Korea, and decided that with five children, that immigrating to the States 
would be easier for many of us for our education as well as our growth. And so he made a very big decision when I was nine and my older sister was eleven. The youngest sibling was two to move all seven of us, small family, to the states in order to settle here. It's amazing as you look back how difficult that decision must have been because as a child you don't think about it much and you only think about adjusting and the difficulties that you've had because none of us spoke English and learning the new language was difficult in and of itself. But when you're children, the adjustments are easier. When you're an Adult, I think it's far more difficult, and I look back with great respect for my parents, not only for making that move, but also enduring all the changes that were involved in making that move. Where did you land first? We landed in LAX, and for those of you who are from Southern California, you might remember this. LAX now has an international terminal called Tom Bradley. They didn't actually have that in 1982. They had this big white tent. It was a dome tent where you landed, and as we landed, we came out and we came indoor. And June eighth is when we came, and it was pretty hot that day. And my youngest sibling, Hannah, is her name. She was so hot, she lied down on the floor of the airport, putting her face to the tile floor, saying, "Everybody should do this because it was so hot." Heat was not something that we were used to when we immigrated at that point in time. At least, not the kind of heat that we were feeling. And so, those are some of the changes that I remember. Going through, we arrived in LAX, and then we moved up to Northern California, where we lived until I was in high school. My father church planted for the Christian Reformed Church up there, a church called Hope CRC, which still is in San Jose, and that's where we spent most of our childhood. Where did your dad do his THM? He did it at. It's now called Master Seminary. He used to be called LA Baptist Theological Seminary. Part of that was it's a Los Angeles area where you had a lot of Koreans, and it's one of those things. It's not just about being educated, but seeing how ministry takes place. So even while he was here, he served at a Presbyterian church in LA while at the same time finishing up his studies for a couple years. So you were always reformed. You were born into and raised in the Christian Reformed Church. Christian Reformed Church, no, because there is no such thing as Christian Reformed Church in Korea. And my father was trained in a seminary called Chongshin Theological Seminary,、mm-hmm. which is the denominational seminary of a PCA-like. Denomination in Korea, Presbyterian Church, and that's where he not only grew up, that's where he served, and that's where I naturally grew up as well. When he came to the states, it's an interesting one for a lot of. Korean Americans and Asian Americans as well, especially for Korean Americans, where so many are Presbyterians, because Korean Protestant movement began with a lot of Presbyterians since the late 1800s. The biggest Protestant church in Korea is still Presbyterians, and the interesting thing is when you are a conservative Presbyterian coming over to the states during the 80s, you have to make a choice, and the choice was there weren't that many, to be honest. You either join The PCA, which was just beginning, it was only less than ten years old, and there weren't that many in Southern California, if any, and so it was hardly known among the Korean Americans. You could potentially join the KAPC, which is a Korean American Presbyterian church, but many of the immigrants, while they honored and they enjoy the Korean Presbyterianism, they're coming to the states and wanted to join a so-called American denomination where they can continue their faith and assimilate. And the option that was before my dad was. Was the Christian Reformed Church because his teacher at Chongshin 
was a pastor in LA who was part of the CRC. So he naturally joined the CRC, which theologically we were aligned, and he church planted for them. He eventually retired for them as well. And so you grew up in San Jose mm-hmm. and went to university at UCLA. Yes. Uh, we won't talk about that. Can the you... best school <laughs> in the West Coast Can you still... in Southern California. <laughs> Can you still do the eight clap? Oh, I was never able to do the eight clap even when I was a student. I think I am somewhat offbeat every time I do it. Uh, for, <laughs> for the listeners who don't know, UCLA has this unique clap that they do as part of their cheer. It's kind of a Gnostic ritual is what it, it is. It is. This is the entry. In, and, and obviously, I've never fully was initiated in, but Scott, Scott's daughter also went to UCLA, and so we share this love affair with our university and the sports teams there, which Scott obviously does not share. No. The only thing I shared with UCLA was a check every month. That's what I shared with UCLA. Thank you for supporting my alma mater. (laughs) And uh, then you ended up at Westminster Seminary, California. I did. As a CRC-raised kid and growing up with the three forms of unity and Heidelberg Catechism in particular, you grow up thinking that Calvin is your natural choice, Calvin Theological Seminary. At that time, however, I was primarily thinking ministry and ministry among Korean Americans, especially immigrant churches. And frankly speaking, West Michigan, as wonderful a place as it is, and I've eventually went there to live there, but it just didn't have the variety of Korean American church options and places to serve. So that's one of the factors that played into our thinking about where I would end up. But there was a moment when the decision was confirmed for me. I was a senior at UCLA when we had a speaker come by and speak to us about infant baptism at that time. And the speaker's name was... W. Robert Godfrey, who <laughs> who then just became president. I know it sounds kind of odd that a president will come to a non-Christian university to speak, but for someone like me, this was a Christian organization gathering weekly, inviting speakers to come and speak to many who are both Christians and searching. And him driving up two and a half hours to speak to us made a great impression on me. And for me to be able to see him speak so articulately about infant baptism was fantastic. And during that time, I had also invited my senior advisor, who was a historian there, and he came by and listened as well. And it was flashing before my eyes, my current professor with my future professor. And I don't even know if Robert Godfrey knows how impactful his visit was, but for an impressionable college student, it made the decision pretty easy for me to stay nearby. I was living in Southern California by this time, and for me to come by Westminster Seminary in California in San Diego was an easy decision. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And eventually you did end up in Grand Rapids, right? You earned a THM at Calvin. I did. You studied under Richard Muller and uh, did work on... I did primarily work on 16th and 17th century history of exegesis, focusing on Romans in particular. And so Muller was my advisor and uh, had a great time spending my uh, mid-20s in Grand Rapids. What a wonderful little town where, you know, I learned a lot. I grew a lot. I served there uh, in that environment as well. And just wonderful folks with great memories. The listener can see some of Joel's research in the volume Always Reformed. There's a chapter where Joel summarizes some of his research. So you ended up in the Presbyterian Church in America as a teaching elder. What was it that confirmed for you in seminary that, yeah, this is what I need to do. I need to be a minister, a teaching elder, and I need to do it in the PCA. How did you come to clarity on those things? 
Discerning where God is leading you is not a cookie cutter one through ten steps. My guess is, and everyone's story may be slightly different. Mine was different too. During my seminary years here at Westminster Seminary, I was in a prayer group with Bob Goffrey, and part of that was because I was CRC. A lot of the CRC students during that time were in his prayer group, and we spent every Wednesday praying not only for our local churches and for ourselves and for our institution, but also for our denomination. It was a very formative time because I think. All of us recognize that there are lots of changes happening in the denomination. You were here at seminary at the point at which the CRC was reaching a kind of a crisis. 1994 through 1997 were the years I was in seminary, and for those who know CRC history, those were the years when some of the decisions were made about women's ordination. It was made and confirmed. And as a student, many of the churches were going through their own thinking process about these issues, and so it was a time in the CRC where it was a very big turning point in many ways. And so, as students who belong to this denomination and frankly love the denomination. Denomination. We prayed every week for this denomination, and Bob led us in thinking about where the denomination is. Now, in thinking about the denomination, eventually, when I ended up in Grand Rapids, we were thinking through what it's going to be like in the process of me getting ordained and where I'm going to end up. And there was another little hurdle with the CRC besides the decision they made in 1995, and the other one had to do with what they call special routes to ministry. For those of us who are trained outside of Calvin, you had to go through another year or two of training and internship in order for you to be ordained. Those are. Some things that I was mulling through. I was talking it through with our second president, Robert Dendulk, who was part of the CRC, and eventually came to the decision after the CRC Synod reconvened in 2000 to confirm their 1995 decision that it was time for me to join a different denomination. Now, this was not an easy decision at all for us. My dad and I, who remained in the CRC until his retirement, it was a difficult conversation for us. Thinking through this difficult issue of not. Not only women's ordination, but you know, family relations, denominations we love. So these were times where a lot of discussions were had, and I made the decision to move on. And 2001, this is when I was ordained for me to pursue ministry in a Presbyterian context. I know you pretty well, and I'm confident that as you made this decision, it wasn't because you don't like women or that you don't think women have any function in the church, but you were really wrestling with Scripture. Right. This is a decision that for you that was driven, I think, by the Word of God. First Timothy two twelve says in the ESV, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet." So that's a fairly plain passage. It's a difficult passage, but it is God's word. It was a very difficult decision because I do believe, and I believe that my dad does as well, that we ought to be governed by the Word. I landed in a different place. Than many in the CRC, my father, I think, as I think through, without putting words in his mouth, I think he is where I am. However, he didn't believe that that's where the line should be drawn in the sand. And there are lots of brothers in the CRC who feel similarly. I believe I am under the conviction that the Scripture teaches that women should not be pastors and elders within the church. And I not only believe that, I teach that to our students as well. And being in a denomination like the PCA, where I can identify with the conviction of the denomination, was an important one for me. This is a difficult issue, like you said, partly because I do love women. I love my wife and my daughter. 
my three sisters are some of the toughest people I know who are probably more articulate than I am. They're incredibly gifted, and I love them, and I love the way that they use their gifts for the kingdom. But Scripture teaches us in terms of how we go about obeying the Lord in terms of how to utilize those gifts. And this is not a knock on the giftedness or my regard for them, but in our desire to be faithful to the Word. Even in the PCA, I think even now, some of the divisions are difficult because we have people who are faithfully arguing from Scripture different positions, and we have people who are making decisions simply based upon the ethos of our time. When it comes to women's issues, sometimes the debate is theological. Sometimes it's about culture because we have folks who are simply traditionalists on one hand. And so their defense of the position is more about how we've done things versus those who are egalitarians who see this not as a scriptural debate, who see this as a cultural one. And I don't think those things are very helpful for us. At the end of the day, this discussion is about scripture and how we uphold the authority of scripture. This is a really important methodological question, problem, issue, and it's something with which we wrestle, and it's something about which we talk to our students as we sit down with them in class and talk to them about how to interpret God's Word. So you are a New Testament prof, and you teach our students how to read the Bible in Greek and read it for themselves, but also how to interpret it. And then you're a pastor, and we all talk to our students about what do you do with this text now that you have learned the context and broader context, the narrower context, you've worked through the grammar, you've come to a conclusion, and now you have to apply it. And so a lot of this decision is how does one apply a text like 1 Timothy 2.12 or relate it to Paul's teaching in Galatians and Colossians that in Christ there's no male or female, which is a passage to which sometimes people appeal. Clearly, Scott, we're going to have to bring you into our Bib Studies department one of these days. Uh, But you're exactly right. Um, We make no apologies for the fact that our desire is to graduate students who are students and experts in the Word. We teach a lot of different things, but at the end, our goal is to produce students who love and study and are faithful to the Word. In order to do that, We also are committed and convicted that the classical education model of seminaries is important for us. One of those things is languages. Some students have pointed out how heavy we invest in the languages, and I recognize that we do that. And the reason we do that is that we believe firmly that in order to rightly divide the word and understand it, understanding it in the language in which it was written is a critical component of our growth in our understanding of the word. And thus, we do invest a lot of time in the languages. At a time where many people feel like seminary education should either tilt toward more practicality or less units in order to deal with the changing times that we have. And we're not blind to the changes and the needs that are out there. But we don't believe that compromising this area is the way to go about educating our future leaders in the church. With all the turmoil taking place, we are betting that more education is needed for the leaders and the pastors in the church than less education. Because the best way to faithfully follow Christ is in these changing times is to better understand his word so that we can make decisions that 
is faithful to the word, yet at the same time, be able to discern and confront as well as respond to the changing times that we have. So we do spend a lot of time in all the departments, whether it be bib studies, practical theology, systematic theology, historical theology, not only discussing how these things are understood and interpreted well, but how these things have been applied in the past and how these things are applied in the present, but all going back to the word, our fundamental authority in all our decisions. And I hope that as the Lord has blessed our years of investing in the students in this way, that's our firm conviction and promise that that's the kind of investment that we want to make in the future pastors in our churches even now. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously, and the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. You've already begun to touch on this somewhat, but what are the challenges and the opportunities that you see theological education facing, and particularly Westminster Seminary, California? I think it's no secret that many of the seminaries are struggling both financially and enrollment issues. I also think that those things are not independent issues, but go hand in hand with many of the churches and in many ways the challenges that churches face. In many denominations and churches, these are all anecdotal, I'm sure, although we can look for statistics to support these discussions. Things are challenging, challenging not only internally in terms of numbers and finances, challenging in terms of young people who look at pastoral ministry as their goal and desire and their call, and then challenges that are confronting us outside the church, whether it's official policy issues or just simply ethos of our culture that do not see Christianity as a desirable option for them, as if it's an option. As somebody jokingly said, it's an ABC culture, anything but Christianity culture. And seminaries reap the, not the benefits, but the unfortunate consequences of those changing times. So we recognize that we're in a situation where there's a decrease in terms of pool of students, as well as pool of individuals who want to support what's going on for theological education. And there's a lot of push for us to seek other options and other means of educating. And I sympathize with not only the concerns, I face them daily, and I understand what folks are trying to say. But I will say this, as an institution, for us, 
we still believe and are convinced that living a life together, both as faculty and students, is the best way to prepare students for pastoral ministry. It's not just about looking at a screen and watching a professor teach them. It's not just about insights gained secondhand or thirdhand. It's about living a life together of hearing the message being proclaimed, hearing the message being explained, living out the message together, because often classroom work is wonderful, but so much more learning takes place outside the classroom when faculty members meet with the students during chapel time, when there's a prayer group every Wednesday as we pray for one another, as we think through the issues together in our homes, in our lunch times. These are times of wonderful growth for us and mentoring. So we do believe that this is an important time for students in a long-term investment of ministry life to be spending three or four years together with folks who are experienced and gifted so that we may learn together. This is not to say that this is the only. All of our students, MDiv students in particular, have to do internship in their local churches. And so this is supplemented and complemented by their local church service, overseen by elders and pastors, following the footsteps of many of the local experienced pastors that they serve with and under. And so this kind of living community of learning is an important one. This is why we're doubling down by finishing up our construction of our 64 apartment units so that we can be a blessing blessing to the students, that students will come on campus, live on campus, live with one another being sharpened and challenged, and also for those outside the states, California, or for that matter, internationally can come and be at a place where there is this kind of intense community of growth and learning. And that's important thing for us. We also think that it's important that education be full that these challenging times require us to prepare the students to the best of our ability to discern the changing times, but know how to look at it from the perspective of Scripture. We maintain our faithfulness to our confessions and the teaching model that we have invested in, and we hope that we will continue to produce the best and the most ready students graduating from here. But you know what's exciting here, Scott, is our location is exciting. There are a couple things about our location that's very important for us to know, and I know most people who are listening think I'm going to talk about the weather. I'm not minimizing the weather. You should come out and check out the beaches. Those are all great things. But there are a couple things about our place that's kind of unique for us. On the one hand, we're in the West Coast. And the reason that's important for us to remember, even for ourselves, as well as those who are contemplating the future, is because we are a gateway to both Asia and Latin Americas. We are about 40 miles from the border to our south, and the Pacific Ocean is a wonderful place to play. But beyond it is a whole host of countries that are looking for partnership as well as resources that an institution like ours can provide. And that's exciting for me because we are a gateway to both Asia and Latin America. And we have a responsibility as an institution to not only bless our local churches, but bless the nations, not only by bringing the best students over to us so that we may train them, that they may return and be leaders there. And this is often happening. We have graduates every year who are going out to various countries. Just to name one, we have Mark Bocanegra, who's sent here by a church in Japan. Now going back, having graduated in Japan to serve there in one of the local churches to church plant this year, we have Antonio Coppola, who came from South Africa, come here, be educated for three years 
years, just returning so that he may church plan in Durban, South Africa, and also teach at their theological institutions. This is happening every single day for us. But not only that, for us to go, our students to go and for the faculty to go and to be a resource for them. And I know I'm talking long here, but if I may just mention one more thing about the opportunity that we have here. San Diego County, we have some wonderful churches. At the same time, we're not part of an area where everyone we meet when we walk out the door, that they are either church folks or at least nominally belonging to a church. If anything else, we live in an area where most people are unchurched or have never been to a church. Yeah, there are three million people in San Diego County, the vast majority of whom probably, as far as we know, don't know Christ, and the vast majority of whom don't attend a visible congregation that is of any kind, let alone a Napark or Presbyterian or Reformed congregation. Absolutely not. I mean, I realize that some people make joke about left coasts and the kind of things that are going on in California. But it presents us a wonderful opportunity that if we're anticipating our country to be continuing to change away from Christianity and Christian values that we thought many more cherished, you cannot think of a better area where you are being able to live out your faith faithfully and to proclaim prophetically from the word, the truth of Jesus Christ, exalting his name, then in San Diego and Southern California. We think we have a place where we are in a training ground to engage in these discussions. And I think it's a challenge for us as an institution and for our students, but I hope it's a challenge that the Lord grants to us both strength and stick to to continue faithfully. You mentioned this in passing. You mentioned the apartment complex that we're building on campus. The nine acres next to the existing campus are, as we speak, being developed so that there's framing going up on at least a couple of buildings now, and there are concrete pads laid down elsewhere, parking lots. So this thing is really coming into existence right in front of our eyes. It's a dream of all boys who wanted to play with Tonka cars because for the last year or so... Giant Tonka trucks out there. They have not allowed me to drive it yet, but... Oh, you're president now. You can do that. You know, I hear that the powers of the presidency here at Westminster Seminary is very limited, and I've come to realize that pretty quickly already. And then at home... I'm completely ignored anyways, <laughs> and so I think it's pretty limiting. Well, at least you have to get your own presidential hard hat. Right? <laughs> I hope so. I, I'm not sure what kind of plating it will have, but yes, I do need a hard hat. It's exciting. Every day as you come by, it's an exciting time for us because for the last year, I thought it was pretty flat land already, but they spent months grading it so that it's actually flat. And now we're going vertical, as they say. Two of the buildings are already mostly framed. We anticipate 64 units being completed by spring of next year, 2018. And this will allow us to house how many people, potentially? You know, it really depends because any of these apartment units can house families or individuals. So we're thinking primarily through the lens of student numbers rather than how many families in particular. Anywhere from 80 to 100 students is what we hope that we might be able to hit in terms of housing there. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So when people are thinking about attending a seminary beginning, say, in the fall of 2018, they should understand that they're thinking about coming to Westminster Seminary, California. There will be housing on campus right next door. They don't even have to drive. They just get up, take a shower, 
and make it to their eight o'clock Greek class about 25 yards away. And definitely take a shower beforehand. <laughs> we want to be a blessing to the students. And one of the ways that we want to be a blessing to the students is to provide a learning environment that allows them to learn with one another. It's also an environment where the family is involved. And that's important too, because oftentimes one of the things that we recognize about seminary life, especially for those who are married and perhaps married with kids, is that the spouses feel this disconnect from what their husbands or wives are doing in class versus what they're doing in the home. This allows them to see and perhaps live together in seeing what that life looks like. And just as importantly for us, many people assume that Southern California is going to be too expensive for them and out of reach. We have generous friends, and we are continuing to find generous friends who are supporting this endeavor of ours, the biggest capital campaign we've had. And we hope that what we will be able to do is to offer the apartment at below market cost here. Already seminary for many people who are not going into very lucrative positions, mind you. Pastoral ministry was never meant for a lot of money making, and we're perfectly fine with that. And we want to be able to support the students by reducing that cost as much as possible. It's hard to kind of visualize what it's going to look like. I hope you go to our website and check out the pictures of these buildings going up as well as our school plans. But it is basically about a hundred steps up a hill a little bit, but from where the housing is and where the classes will be. It's amazingly close. It's right next to one another, and it's going to be a wonderful addition to our campus here. There'll be common areas that people will be able to share. Play areas. I've heard in the plans about fire pits so that community life can be built right around it. The listener might not know what this is. In Southern California, you know, in Escondido, in the evening, after the heat of the day begins to wane, after about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, the winds change, it begins to cool off. And then as the sun goes down, it's still nice out. People build fires and they sit outside around the fire. We are right on the edge of coastal weather and this kind of more plains or desert, desert. weather. And so that it cools down pretty quickly at night. And so one's favorite pastime for many of us here is we get a chance for a great majority of the year just to sit outside and fellowship and just hang out. Now, I'm not just saying this because, you know, it sounds idyllic. Really, that's what most people do. It's the reality. And if you're from Grand Rapids or if you're from the plains like I am, one thing you need to know, there are almost no mosquitoes. It's true. <laughs> it is true. I never thought about that, but... Well, you know, because if I tell people in Nebraska, we're going to sit outside in the evening, they think, oh, okay, maybe, but you don't have to worry about mosquitoes. But I should be also honest, and there should be truth in advertising in reminding people that San Diego is not all along the coastline. So not everyone who lives in San Diego, every time I say San Diego, my wife thinks I should define where we are in San Diego. We're not overlooking the ocean. Ocean is basically 20 minutes away, yeah. but we have this wonderful valley view. We're 18 miles as the crow flies That's right. to the ocean. So on a good day, you can make it from here to the beach in about 20 minutes. Oh, absolutely. It's a wonderful place to be. Last question. In 1993, just as you were beginning to go to seminary, Dr. Godfrey gave his inaugural address. And that's published in the book that we mentioned earlier, Always Reformed. And I think it's online as well. And you and I are well familiar with this document mm -hmm. where he laid out his vision for the future of the seminary. You are probably contemplating your inaugural address. Can you give us some idea of the kinds of things you're thinking about for the future of Westminster Seminary, California? 
There's a lot of thoughts percolating, Scott, and there's a lot of work to be done in terms of thinking through. It is a daunting task for someone like me to think through not just about our immediate future, but our long-term future. I will say this. One of the things that Godfrey laid out at that point, which has stuck with me for all these years that I've been here, is speaking of this kind of both intentional and committed reform theological education as well as faith in life. I think that's a very important one. What we're doing right now is not reinventing the wheel. No, we're standing on the shoulders of both giants, and we're standing on our firm convictions on the confessions. And I share that conviction, and here our hope is that our education and our ministry will be faithfully grounded in what has been handed down to us. One additional thing that we see not only in Bob Godfrey's, but also Robert Dendulk's and Strimple's inaugural addresses, this is one of the fun things you get to do. You get to see where your predecessors have come from. And I know as well as I'm sure all of us here is that we are standing on these men's shoulders and their faithfulness, and I intend to do the same, has been their global perspective. We're living in changing times where it's no longer about this wonderful resource and treasure that we have that we share among one another and to the people who are locally. Christianity is spreading throughout the world, and one of the things that we have and hold dear is this wonderful, reformed theological faith in life. And we want to share that, and we want to be a blessing onto the nations regarding it. And it's reflected in their writing in all those areas as well. And we want to place ourselves 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road to be preparing men and women for the church locally and globally. And that reflection in the past inaugural addresses will be seen in my own as well as we think through it. We're building further, not building anew. We pray that the Lord will be faithful in that direction. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.